Thank you very much, John, for your kind presentation. When I received an unexpected telephone call last January from our president, I presumed he wanted to ask me a question about the upcoming nominations committee meeting. However, after saying hello and asking how Mary, my wife, and the family were, he asked if I would be coming to the CLSA convention in Phoenix in October. Without much thought, I nonchalantly answered, I probably would be. He then said that the Board of Governors had agreed that they would bestow on me the annual Roll of Law Award at the convention. I was stunned and had a deep, visceral response beyond words. After I caught my breath and collected my thoughts, I asked John if he had the right number and the right person, or had he made a mistake, as this can be. Having served on the board for many years, I often was involved in the selection of the next recipient of this honor. In all those times, I had never thought of myself as a potential person for that group. That group was way above my pay grade and expertise in the law. When John and I finished our conversation that evening, and he assured me I was the selection of the board, Mary asked, now what did you forget to tell me? Seems there are times I agree to do certain things without seeking the necessary consultation for the validity of my actions. I responded, you will never in your wildest dreams guess what just happened to me. I then received a reality check about my need for humility when she responded, I hate to burst your bubble, but you have never been in my wildest dreams. I am deeply humbled by this award. Tonight, as I heard John announce my name, I had a flashback to those emotions last January and thought I need to find the closest exes. I think they call that a panic attack. I wish to sincerely thank the Board of Governors and the CLSA membership for this honor. I can't help but think God really does have a sense of humor in including me among the esteemed group of the past 45 recipients of this honor. So now in keeping with past practice, a few thoughts about the law and the church. The church, including its law, is now in crisis like none other since the beginning of the modern era. Naively, I thought the church had weathered its crisis of my lifetime, namely the clergy sex abuse crisis of 1985 to 2002. However, the crisis has entered a new phase, but not because of a new wave of cases. The grand jury report into incidences of clergy sex abuse in six Catholic dioceses in Pennsylvania was deeply disturbing. But the evidence appears to indicate that the policies put in place by the Dallas Charter in 2002 are working. What this new phase of the crisis is about is the dramatic collapse of the hierarchy's credibility, as well as the extreme anger of US Catholics across the board. New law wasn't needed for the first phase of the crisis. The law existed, but it wasn't followed. With the first phase of the crisis, what was needed was a mechanism of external accountability to ensure that the law was followed in the future. However, this new phase of the crisis is not about cleric offenders 
are about child sexual abuse or even adult sexual abuse or harassment. It is about the free fall of the credibility of bishops. In making this statement, I do not mean to be dismissive or disrespectful of victims of sexual abuse. I mean to say that the problem is much bigger, much deeper than the failure of individual members of the clergy and the repulsive, abhorrent acts they committed inflicting long-lasting harm on others. The depth and magnitude of this crisis makes it worse than any crisis since the one that rocked the church five centuries ago. The public shock of 2002 has yielded now to the rage at the shepherds who were not protecting their flocks through it all. Make no mistake, people are angry, ashamed to be Catholic, and angry some more. The loss of Episcopal credibility has led to the rift among Catholics becoming even wider and to a certain delusion of certainty. Now it seems facts are given less weight than an accusation. Credibility is deemed by, determined by identifying with a particular group. And conclusions are drawn not in what is just and right, but in what is convenient or best for your side. There is abhorrent, monstrous, grotesque ugliness in this litany of offenses that has exploded before us, continues to explode, and will continue to explode in the months, if not years, ahead. However, the question is not whether the Catholic Church will survive this age of scandal, but what form the Church will survive in. Sin explains what is happening now and the harm that is playing out in front of us, but it does not excuse it. So how to cure the situation? The immediate agenda should be acting in favor of victims and survivors of abuse, getting rid of corruption, being fair-minded in the approach to accusations, and rebuilding the unity of the church. The long-term answers will have to be made by ecclesiologists, canonists, and leaders of the church above my pay grade. But here are some of my thoughts. First, and what we as individuals personally can do, and then second, what should happen canonically. First, on an individual level. An important part of the cure is a radical striving for holiness on the part of all the Catholic faithful. For anyone ordained, I believe that this includes swearing off any claim on power, perks, or privileges, and trying to conform ourselves to the humble and loving, gentle and merciful, serving and self-sacrificing Jesus. Connected with a personal radical striving for holiness is telling tales so that this never happens again. It is in telling tales that this hurt becomes part of our institutional psyche and never again becomes embedded in who we are as church. For it is in telling tales that we don't push the snooze button like we did in the past. I have heard some suggest that perhaps the Feast of the Holy Innocents on December 28th should be expanded to include the childhood victims of clergy sexual abuse. Also, we need to prepare our fellow parishioners and our friends that our church will be living with these sorts of revelations we have been hearing in recent months for years to come. It 
seems to me that from the world church point of view, we are still at the very beginning as far as appraising and clarifying clerical sexual abuse issues. Moreover, as canonists, we need to proclaim that justice is a necessary element for healing, but not always sufficient. There's also the matter of the discovery of the truth. We need to proclaim that some accusations are just that, accusations. Thus, those who make false accusations also must be held accountable. In these times of pressure and anger towards the church and her leaders, with the generalized public opinion of guilty until proven innocent, and to argue otherwise is to be part of that repulsive institution known as the Catholic Church, we need to remind our bishops that there are some Catholic clergy who have been falsely accused, albeit perhaps only a few. Nonetheless, those accused need to be respected and to be able to vindicate their good name in a timely manner before a competent forum, not to be an example of how serious the bishop now has become in addressing accusations of sexual abuse or harassment. Second, on an ecclesiological and canonical level, we are waiting for the November meeting of the USCCB. We are waiting for the February meeting of the presidents of the Episcopal conferences. But it is clear, Rome cannot wait to act, nor can the church in the United States just wait to see what happens in Rome. It is now absolutely essential for the church to tackle the question of its checks and balances, its separation of powers, without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We have had this conversation before. My thoughts tonight are not original. All we have to do is review past issues of CLSA proceedings since 2002. For example, presentations by John Beale, Paul Golden, Thomas Green, Dan Hoy, Rose McDermott, and Charles Shakluna. And this year we had Susan Mulheron's presentation on Tuesday morning in the hearings just this afternoon of the USCCB Canonical Affairs Committee. If there is anything marriage has taught me, it is that male-dominated structures of the old boys' networks have to end. Clerical friendships and loyalties have too much influence in the church, prevent critical investigation and verifications of clergy sex abuse, foster cover-up, and conflict with making clerical sexual abuse more transparent. By avoiding the structure debate, the church is actually fostering failure. We must have a power in the church that investigates abuse in its cover-up, demands access to files, and informs the public under its own authority and is independent of the hierarchy. Comprised of laity and clerics, men and women, radical reform is necessary. The human insights of non-clerical canonists are essential for the holistic resolution of the issue the church faces. Furthermore, the lack of a structure to address holding a bishop accountable for his actions or failure to act, other than going directly to the Pope or indirectly only through the Secretary of State or Congregation for Bishop, needs to change. Synodality seems to be the best model for the church to get out of this mess. But the model has to incorporate not only institutions of synodality that already exist, but also to create institutions of synodality that do not exist, such as lay boards of inquiry conducted for the appointment of bishops. 
Yes, the signs are present that the church is in serious need of reform. At the same time, there need to be some immediate changes in current operating procedures in regard to judicial as well as hierarchical recourse processes. The lack of transparency of the congregation for the doctrine of faith and abuse proceedings must change. More staff must be added to the congregations that adjudicate these matters. And the staff to be added cannot all be priests. Qualified laypersons, men and women, and women and non-ordained men religious need to be added to make decisions timelier, more functional, and more credible. Finally, there needs to be an intermediary step between the diocese and the Holy See that can adjudicate cases, whether the case is a judicial process or an administrative process. No matter how many staff we add, no system can function effectively, efficiently, and in a credible manner when the only option is to go from the local level to the supreme level. Enough. It is clear that the church's credibility has been deeply shattered. Now in 2018, the critical challenge facing the church is to develop structures of accountability and to foster a climate in which accountability and transparency can flourish. If we do, perhaps the church can begin to regain some credibility and be on the way to exiting this dark night of the soul. But only if all of the Christi Fidelis are at the table of resolution will we be at the table of reconciliation. Again, thank you very much for your kindness. I humbly accept this reward and acknowledge with gratitude and love all those whose guidance and support have made this possible. And most of all, I'm grateful for and continue to pray for God's guidance and mercy on this kid from Iowa. <laughs>